Hey, good morning. How we doing? So Jason talked about the school for 18 to 28-year-olds called Cultivate. We're starting a school for young kids. Yeah. So it's called Rogue Christian Academy. It's for K through eighth grade. Um, and we're launching it. Yeah. So you may ask, didn't you try to start a school a year and a half ago? Yes. Didn't it fail? Yes. Why are you doing it again? Henry Ford said this, failure is an opportunity to begin again better. That's what we're doing. So last time we had like two months to try to launch it and it just squished stuff. We've been talking about this since uh, end of September, October. And we've kind of put things together in our heads with a group of people and we are certain that we can do it. So this is a long-term, all right, we can do it. So if you have a lot of questions or want to know about it, uh, there's a table in the very back part of the entryway, and there's literature there. There's going to be an open house March 12th where you can come. It's a Sunday evening. Bring your questions, your thoughts, your concerns. So that's what we're doing. All right? So we need two things, your prayers and your support, your time, your treasure, and your talents, because it's a big undertaking, but I think that the church has a responsibility to raise godly offspring. And we get to do that. So Jesus, I pray for Rogue Christian Academy. I pray for wisdom for every individual who is right now planning and looking. I pray for provision, Lord, that you would, or you guide, you would provide, and that we would see that. I pray, Lord, for the kids of this next generation. I pray that there would be raised up a group of young men and young women who know who they are, who have a right perspective of the world, who understand they belong to you as king, that they are right now in training to become future rulers of the cosmos. And they begin to go out into our culture, out into our community, and cause change because of simply who they are. So give wisdom in that. I pray as we think through and study scripture today, I pray that you would apply it to each of us where we are at right now in the way that you intend it. So may we have listening ears to hear what you want to speak to the church this morning. And I ask this in your name, amen. Amen. So if you're new, welcome. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're in a series that I've called Formed. And it's because in Galatians 4.19, Paul says this. He says, I am in child labor, like giving birth to a baby to see Christ formed in you. That's Paul's goal, his aim, what he went for, the reason why he gave his life for the gospel was one thing, to see people transformed into the image of Jesus. So I'm gonna remind us of this every time I do this series probably. These things that we're talking about, they're called practices. Not perfections, practices. So maybe you've come the last couple of weeks and you've heard about the Sabbath day and how that can get us in sync 
Or last week about slowing down, how we're in a culture that wants to just, it wants to erode away all the margins and we've got to be careful to slow ourselves down. And you think to yourself, well, I don't Sabbath. I live super fast. I don't read the Bible. I don't pray. I don't give. I don't do any of these things. And now you're feeling condemned by it. And you're starting to wonder, am I even a believer? Because I don't seem to do anything. Well, I want you to do something if you would. I want you to read your Bible. Because what you're going to notice is this. There's a common denominator among God's people, the people that God uses. You know what that common denominator is? Edgewater would not hire them. They couldn't pass a background check, right? Like we wouldn't hire them and we have sketchy employees. I'm serious, me, I'm the sketchiest. If you know me, I'm sketchy, okay? So think for a moment, if you were to interview Moses for a job at a church. So Moses, tell me about yourself. Well, kind of blew it with my kids. I wasn't doing what God wanted me to with them. And so actually God pinned me to the ground, almost killed me. Well, you know, parenting is hard, we, we get that, okay. But keep, keep, keep going. Well, uh, my brother and sister led a revolt against me. That was a bummer. Uh, the congregation I was leading, I was in sabbatical and they made a golden calf and they uh, danced nakedly around it and 3,000 of them died. That was a down point. And oh, by the way, I killed the guy and buried him in the sand. Chevron, Chevron's hiring. You can work there. Or maybe the government, that was a good place for you. Not here, right? Right? David, let's interview David. Tell me about yourself. I killed Goliath. But he also killed my girlfriend's husband. What? Yeah, that's David, right? I mean, go on and on and on. Listen, these are called practices. This series is not to make you feel bad. It's not to jam up your game. It's not for people that are doing things really well. That's what it's for. It's I want you to get that sometimes these tiny grace-driven tweaks in life have this massive ripple effect across the rest of your life. And all of them, the Bible says, are actually empowered by God's spirit, that he'll empower these things. When you decide, Man, I don't wanna do this, God empowers them. That these disciplines or these practices or these habits, whatever you wanna call them, they're not for people that have figured out the code and are nailing it and are awesome. Not at all. It's not for me up here on the stage. Listen, I'm not here up on the stage because I'm somehow better than Moses or David. I might be worse. My heart might be worse, okay? I'm up here on stage for one reason. Jesus has so arrested me with his grace and with his goodness, I can't help myself but to respond to him. That's it. He has kept me as the apple of his eye now for year after year, even when I'm a bonehead. And that's why I'm up here, okay? So when we look at these things, they're practices. They're to intrigue you. They're to get you to try them because they can change your life. So we're today moving into a group of practices. I call them the secret practices. And I think they might be the most important because we do them in secret without people watching us. Because what happens is what we do in secret begins to really change our character. What I do in public, what I do up here isn't changing me. Right? There's a show to it. There's ego to it. There's all that stuff. But these practices, because they're done in secret, have, I think, the most potential to actually change you and conform you to the image of Christ. 
And so Jesus actually groups these three together and says they're the secret practices. They're giving, praying, and fasting, and they're powerful. So if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter six, verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness, all the things we're talking about, before other people in order to be seen by them. It will warp your character. For then you'll have no reward from our Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Give secretly. Jesus gives us a when, a how, and a who to give to. Verse two, the when. When you give to the needy. Not if you give to the needy. Jesus actually repeats it two times. Because there is an assumption by Jesus that his followers will become a generous kind of people. It's assumed because God is generous. The book begins, Genesis 1 and 2, God created a very good place and he gives it to his image bearers, Adam and Eve. And God's nature is to give, give, give until he gives himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have age abiding life. When you give. So America, United States, we were founded on Christian Judeo ethics. You can argue that all you want. I have a prayer that a guy took the Constitution and he wrote out this very long, almost a page long prayer from just the phrases used in our Constitution. It's woven into it. And what's amazing is this, our country is very generous. The people of America are very generous. So John Stossel was looking at this and he went back to 2005 when there was the big tsunami in the Indian Ocean there and it hit Indonesia and India and Thailand and just wiped it out. 250,000, 225,000 people died. Like brutal. The government of the United States gave $900 million. The people of America gave $2 billion. Why? Because we're a generous people. Arthur Brooks, who's just, read everything he writes. He is amazing. He wrote this book called, Who Really Cares? And in it, he was like comparing America to other countries, the Americans, not our government, but individuals, how generous are Americans? There is no nation as generous as Americans. So we are seven times more generous than a German, 14 times more generous than an Italian, just goes on and on and on. Why? Because we have this ethic in us to give. Right? We're a giving nation. And you know what? It's not the rich that give. It's the poor. So do you know the most generous state in America? Mississippi. Do you know the poorest state in America? 
Mississippi. Because when you're close to it, you realize how devastating poverty can be. When you get your underwear from Goodwill, you realize, I don't want anyone else to go through that. Here's a three pack of Hanes, right? That's what happens. And 70% of the giving in America is done by Christians. It's not if, it's when, it's when. Number two, how do you give? Jesus says, don't blow a horn. Dun, dun, dun. Look at me giving. He says, in fact, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When Christians give, right after we give, we should pray that God gives us dementia, right? Amnesia. We should be constantly secret Santas from ourself. That's what we're supposed to be. Don't tell people. Don't talk about it. Forget that you gave it. And here's why. So let's imagine for a second. Use your imagination. Let's say uh, you're a little bit older. Um, you're retired. You went to the University of Oregon. You got a good education. Really use your imagination there. Let's imagine you could do that. So you've made a lot of money. You've decided, you know what? I won a national championship. So you call up Dan Lanning, the new head coach for the Oregon Ducks, and you tell him, I am giving you $50 million, right? Your goal is a national championship. So you give that money to him. A month later, Dan Lanning leaves the Ducks and goes and gets another coaching job at the University of Washington. Are you upset? Yes, why? Because it wasn't a gift, was it? You were trying to buy something. You are trying to buy a national championship. Listen, we do that all the time with money, don't we? We think we give it to people, but we're not. I have conversations with people all the time that go like this. You know, I'm not giving any more money to my son, my daughter, my dad, my brother, my sister, whatever it is. I'm not giving any money to that person. And I'll say, why not? Well, I gave them some money and they weren't thankful enough to me. They spent the money on stuff that I didn't think they should spend it on, right? Well, I have to say, hey, that's fine but you didn't give that money to them. You were paying them for a behavior that you wanted. Man, use your money well, be thankful to me, be more grateful. You were actually trying to buy something. And the problem with that is this, you're using that money to control them. Jesus says, give this way and you get free twice. Number one, when you give, you get set free from being possessed by your possessions, which is brilliant. But number two, when you give and you have amnesia, guess what? Man, you're free from trying to control that person. You're not worried about how they gave it. And the only way you can give that is if you're giving it to the who and your father who sees you and seek a reward. I don't need a reward from them by their behavior or gratitude or thanksgiving to me. My reward is God told me to give this to you and I'm giving it, period. And I don't care what you do with it. And I'm praying for amnesia when I'm done giving it to you. You're set free. It's the best way to give, okay? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. So as do we do stuff, but we don't toot our horn. And the reason why is right here, I'd rather have God's reward for us as a church than people saying, wow, that's amazing what you guys do. It doesn't matter. I want God's lasting reward. And I think we might be moving into a different economy here. Could be possible. Or things get tighter because of interest rates or because of inflation or whatever's coming for us. And it will be giving. That's the gasoline that can help people out. So be generous, Jesus says. And when you're generous, have amnesia about it. Brilliant. Secret discipline number one. 
Secret discipline number two, praying. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, not pray this, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespassers. So there was a group of people in that time that they'd go into the synagogue, into church, and they'd be like, hey, hey, hey I'm going to pray. Everybody listen to me. I'm going to pray. They go out on the street corners, and they'd be like, hey, I'm going to pray now, and try to get people to see them. So Jesus is addressing that. And he says, don't pray like that. Go home. Go in your room. Shut the door and pray in there. So Matt, does this mean that we're not supposed to pray publicly? Because praise the Lord if that is true. Like the worst thing I ever could imagine doing is having to pray publicly. Like this would be the best person in the world. Ever been in those prayer circles? You know where it kind of goes around and it's one person praying, the next person prays and you know it's coming for you? And people are praying these brilliant prayers, right? They're quoting scripture. Like the tongues of fire are descending on their heads and there's like power going up and you're like, oh, they're going to know I'm a moron. Oh, golly, right? And you can't even listen to their prayers because you're so worried about what am I going to pray? How am I going to sound brilliant, right? And that's all you're thinking about. And finally, you get a brilliant thing to pray about and you're like, oh, yes, that's it. And then the person right before you prays the same thing. You're like, oh, I hate you, Right? We don't have to do that. Praise God. <laughs> I think if you take all the texts together, and remember, Jesus is correcting a very disturbing trend that was happening. But if you take all the texts together, what it's saying is this. Your public prayer life should be like an iceberg. What is visible is dwarfed by what is underneath. That's what he's saying. That if all my prayers are public and that's it, I'm sunk. There should be this buoy of my private prayer life that actually um, uh, just makes a little bit pop up in public, okay? So Jesus here says, I think when you pray, it needs to be secret and it should be simple. 
Secret. Don't announce it. You have, ever have somebody announce to you how, they, how much they pray? It's one of the most awkward things. Happened to me like 20 years ago. I'm working a job, not a pastor, not in ministry, just full-time job at this place called Met One. It was a short ways away from the club. So I go to the club at noon and work out for a half an hour to wake up. It's either a lot of coffee or do a workout. So I'm in there one day, I'm, I'm working out, I'm finishing up, and I'm walking by this local pastor, and he's on the elliptical, and I kind of know him, he kind of knows me, so I'm walking by, and as I walk by, this is what he said to me, hello, mighty man of God. I was like, well, the guns are pretty big, thank you, appreciate that. And so I stop, and we talk for a few minutes, and I'm like, I gotta go to work. He goes, me too, I'm going home, and I'm gonna pray for four hours. And I just laughed, I was like, oh man, that's, oh, you're serious, oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> if you really prayed four hours a day, you'd never tell somebody. If you really prayed four hours a day, Titanics would be sinking in this town, right? You don't need to announce it. So never announce it. Don't tell people how much you're praying. It's not the purpose of it, right? Number two, it's to be simple. Look out for formulas. And there's something that happens, I think, the longer you're a Christian, you begin to have almost this formulaic prayer. Some people, like, they all of a sudden launch into a different kind of English, like Old English. <laughs> Father God, we beseech thee this glorious day that your power, and you're just like, you never talk that way. Who is this now, right? Or all of a sudden you get an accent. Jesus! Yeah, all right, man. Like somehow God can hear that better. Or the just, right? Lord, we just, Lord, we just, Lord, we just. Like, do I talk to my spouse that way? Honey, I just wish that you would, and I just want you to know, right? And it's easy to fall into them. And what Jesus is saying here is like, be careful of that stuff. Look out, because what's happening in that moment is this. My, my mouth is speaking, but my mind is disengaged. Over here doing something totally different. Because they just kind of turn on the tape player. Be careful, right? So what I found is kids, when they're little, are the best model for prayer. And then at some point, kids become like me, and all of a sudden it's tape recorder again. I'll ask them to pray. Hey, can you pray for dinner? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this food. Thank you for this day. Amen. <laughs> right? But when they're little, man, they're thoughtful and they're honest in their prayers. Like one of my boys, when I'd ask him to pray for dinner, he would look at every person around the table and he would pray individually for them. The best time was though, this time, he prayed like this. First mom, Jesus, I pray you would bless mom and thank you for the good food that she made today. It's so delicious. And then it was me, bless dad. Thank you that he studies for the money. Like, I don't think I do that, son, but okay. And then it was Carissa, and bless Carissa, and bless her horses. May she have fun riding. And then Gabrielle, bless Gabrielle, and bless her on, when she plays soccer. And then he came to his third sister, and he just said, not you. <laughs> it was the best. Something that happened, and he was honest and thoughtful. <laughs> simple prayers. It's thoughtful. Here's the way I have found to break the ruts that I get in into prayer. 
So two or three times a week, what I'll do in the morning is this. I will, all I'll do is pray a psalm. So I read a verse of the psalm, I think about that verse. I meditate on it for a second. And then I pray whatever God is leading me. And what happens is my normal routine of prayer, whatever it is, Lord, thank you, I need this help, help, is gone because I'm now being guided by God's word and how I pray. And what I find is really good family fellowship. That's what happens in those moments. Like, yes, this is rich and good. And there's 150 different ways to do it, right? Takes you a long time to get through that at two or three times a week. So maybe try that. We try praying a psalm, right? So Jesus says, number two, when you pray, do it in secret. And then thirdly and lastly, last secret practice is fasting. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So 2,000 years ago, here was, here's what was happening with fasting. People would throw dirt on their head. They'd put on their oldest, grubbiest clothes, no deodorant, no brushing their teeth, and they would walk around with sucked in cheeks saying, oh, I'm fasting. They look like a bunch of disgruntled 49er football fans. Like, oh, they did it to me again, right? Just like that. Jesus says, you do it in secret. No one should know you're fasting. Because the point is not to get people to know you're fasting. There's a point to fasting. You know what, the, you know what it is? I'll give you a bunch of them from the Old Testament. Number one in the Old Testament, people would fast, number one, to bring guidance. So there's this king. His name is Jehoshaphat. It's Second Chronicles chapter 20. Massive army has gathered against him, 100 to one odds. He's doomed. And his generals and he, they're having a conversation. What do we do here? And Jehoshaphat, Hosabat just starts to pray and he goes, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And they fasted and they prayed and the answer was given to King Jehoshaphat. And so his generals are like, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna send out the army? Mm-mm. Calvary? Mm-mm. Air Force? Mm-mm. Marines? Mm-mm. Are we gonna shoot the balloon out of the sky? Mm-mm. Not gonna do that either. <laughs> what are we gonna do? Send out the praise team. What? Yep, that's what they did. You know the story. The praise team, whatever happened in the spiritual realm, that enemy was confounded and confused, started to fight amongst themselves and just took off running because that's the power of praise. He got guidance to do things in a, way, in a way no one would do before. How? By fasting. Ezra is gonna lead a group of 100 families from Babylon to Jerusalem across the desert and he knows this is dangerous. So for three days, Ezra and his crew, they fast and pray and they get, that's actually the next one, sorry. They get protection. Number two is build protection. 
So Ezra gets protection to cross the desert by fasting. Esther has to go into the king's room and she knows if I go in there and he doesn't lower the scepter, it's a death sentence. I get killed right there on the spot. So she says, please pray for my protection and fast that God would protect me as I go in to the courts of the king. It brings protection. Number two, it can begin revelation. Daniel's reading the Bible. He comes to a, a prophecy by Jeremiah. He can't understand it. He doesn't have Google back then to find some nutty theology about Jeremiah. So he has to pray and fast. He does that for 21 days and an angel is sent. He's given a revelation from God that we study to this day that's brilliant. Daniel chapter nine and 10, unbelievable. It can begin revelation. It can break bondage. And this is a big one. So I actually, Isaiah 58 is a great chapter on fasting in the Old Testament. But this is the key verse. Is not this the fast that I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness? You ever feel like you're just bound by some kind of wickedness and you keep trying and trying and trying and you cannot seem to get away from it? Fast to undo the straps of the yoke. You ever feel like you're yoked to something that's pulling you in directions you don't want to be pulled in? You ever feel oppressed? Like you don't even know why. Why do I feel so oppressed? It's over and over the psalmist. My soul, why are you disquieted within me? What's going on right now? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Man, brilliant. That somehow when I say no to a body appetite, there can be a transfer of power to the spirit realm, to other parts of my life, to break something that's got me into bondage, maybe an addiction, maybe a temper I cannot seem to tame, maybe pornography, whatever it is, that there can be a transfer of power. When I say no physically, it transfers to other parts. It's brilliant. It's amazing. Those are all Old Testament, though. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about fasting. And this is the one I want us to look at really quickly and then we're done. So in Matthew chapter nine, Jesus has John's disciples come to him and they have a question on fasting. Here it is. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskin and so both are preserved. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. That last one, have you ever heard about new wine and old wineskins? It's one of the biggest bully texts people use against church. So whatever a church is doing, it's, hey, you need to change that, man. He needs the new wine. What, you do praise like that? That's so 2005. Come on, you need some new wine. Are you preaching out of the Bible? Come on, that's so old. Do something new, man. 
right? It's just bully texts. And whenever someone mentions that to me, I always say, could I read for you the context? Jesus is not talking about how you do praise or how you do preaching or how you do church. What is Jesus talking about? Fasting. That what Jesus is saying is this, because of Calvary, why you fast has been transformed. You don't fast anymore to be consecrated like you did in the Old Testament because I have consecrated you. You don't fast anymore to prepare for a sacrifice for sins because I am the sacrifice for your sins. You don't fast anymore to try to prepare yourself for God's presence because you are now the very temple of the Holy Spirit. It's already happened to you, right? That's what Jesus, that's the context of what Jesus is talking about, right? And so to me, when you read that, there's two things that come out of it for a New Testament believer when it comes to fasting. Number one is this. I think abstinence is the avenue to abundance. That when we say no to something, that that actually can be the way that we get what we really want. I'll give you a big one, sex. When a man and a woman get married and they say, no to every other woman, every other man on earth, and only yes to each other. They're saying no to all that stuff. What happens, and sociologists are finding this more and more and more. There's an abundance in that relationship that you get no other way. It's no to all that, why? Because there's abundance. Abstinence is the way to abundance, right? So Jesus is talking about food. Do we ever eat food for the wrong reasons? You ever have a hard day, a difficult day, and then you're like, man, I'm just going to go eat some ice cream. I'm pretty sure at the bottom of this container is the solution. And if it isn't, I'm going to still find out if it isn't, right? And what do we call that food? Comfort food. We turn to food now for comfort because things are hard. And listen, I love food. Food is a gift from God, right? Guacamole is a gift from God. Salsa is a gift from God. Steak is a gift from God. Pad thai is a gift from God. Good apples are a gift from God. Bad apples are satanic. A mushy one, you're like, Satan, forbidden fruit, right? I mean, just for a minute, think about the flavors that God has given to us. It's amazing, isn't it? Be thankful I'm not God. Why? Well, I had this dog named Chloe. She's a golden retriever. When I got her, I realized I'm going to need to buy dog food for Chloe. So I go to the market and I go to buy some dog food and there are 50 different kinds of dog food. Like what kind of a country is this, right? 50 different kinds of dog food. I'm like, oh, great. So I'm walking down the aisle trying to figure out what dog food do I buy for my golden retriever? I walk down, there is this giant yellow bag and on the cover of this yellow bag is a golden retriever running through the fields looking happy. I went, that's the food. For 11 years... I bought that same dog food for Chloe. She, three times a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, for 11 years, ate the exact same food. Imagine if God did that to us. Like you go to the store and there's just a bag that says man food. It's got a happy man on it going, like that's it, buy that one. And that's all you eat for your whole life. God could have done that, but he didn't. He's given us flavors, right? Be thankful how much 
God has given to us. That sometimes when we fast in those moments and then when we eat that meal, when we come out of the fast, what happens is there's abundance there. Like, wow, God has been so good to me. I forgot how good food is. I forgot how generous God has been to me. I forgot, oh, you remember it. Because sometimes abstinence is the way to abundance. But number two, and this is the main point of that text, I think, all of these things are about the bridegroom. That if I decide that I'm going to fast and my whole purpose for fasting is this, I wanna break some kind of addiction, you will lose. Jesus tells this story about a man who had a demon. Demon was causing him problems. I don't know what kind of problems, maybe addictions, maybe temper, I don't know, maybe sexual addiction, I don't know, problems. And so the demon got cast out of the man. How? I don't know, maybe fasting, maybe prayer was gone. And the house was swept empty. And then that demon saw the empty house, grabbed seven demons, and then went back to the house and reoccupied it. And the final state of the man was worse than the beginning. Why? Because it was the wrong goal. The wrong goal was just to get the house empty. That can't be the goal. So Jesus is talking to this group of people, these Pharisees that were using fasting as a theater. Look at me. It was their Instagram. It was virtue signaling. It was all that. Look how great I am. Look at my halo is shining. What were they missing? The point of it. The point is the groom. That's the point. They are missing. The point is the groom. It'd be like talking to a gal who's getting ready for her wedding. You start asking about it. She's like, oh, man, the gifts. By the way, I'm registered at Costco. The gifts, oh, yeah, man. The guests are going to be so awesome. I love these guests that are coming. Right? The venue is out in Applegate at a vineyard. It's so beautiful. Oh, my videographer, you should see some of the stuff he makes. My photographer, she is amazing. The caterer, it's the best food in the world. The pastor, he's brilliant. And you say, well, what about the groom? Oh yeah, he's fine, but the flowers, you're not busy with flowers. You'd be like, you're missing the point of a wedding. And we do that so quickly. We do it so quickly. We do it with these tools, right? We start making the tools something important. Jesus is saying, listen, that's Old Testament. I'm the ultimate. The point is not the tool. The point is not fasting. The point is not food. The point is not praying. The point, point is not giving, right? Those are a means to something. They're a means to Jesus, that Christ might be formed in our life. And what happens is we miss this so quickly and we become modern day Pharisees and hypocrites where we start elevating some discipline that we're involved in. Well, I Sabbath, look how cool I am. Well, I've slowed down my life. I've gotten rid of all technology. Oh, I pray this amount. Oh, I don't eat these foods. Okay, big whoop, right? You're not becoming more Christ-like and that's what matters. We think somehow that we can control God by our fasting or get what we want by our fasting. Look out. The point is the bridegroom, look out. And we get caught so quickly. Someone's brilliant with words and they put it in a new kind of way and we love their book or whatever it is. And so we're all into that. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And what happens is we settle for condiments and we forget the steak. We're eating mayonnaise then. Man, the steak is Jesus, right? I'm gonna say that over and over and over again. Gardening's starting up pretty soon here. We got all these tools to garden with, right? Rototiller and a pick and a hoe and whatever, right? All these tools, 
Why don't we have all these tools? Is it to have a weed-free garden? No. What's it for? Vine-ripe tomatoes in July, right? Who cares if your garden is weed-free if there's no tomatoes in July? Does that make sense? That the goal is not weed-freeness. The goal is, I want vine-ripe tomatoes. You got to have the right goal in mind whenever we're talking about these things. And Jesus makes it real simple. It's me. It's me. And if these tools aren't giving you more of me, get rid of the tool. Or you're going to be a tool, right? That's what will happen. You'll be a modern-day Pharisee. So I'll finish with these two verses. Ephesians 3, 17, which is the culmination of all this theology packed into this book. Paul says this. It's his prayer for us. So that I've said all this stuff, and I'm praying for this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is to believers. That, verse 19, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Think about that phrase right there. Is that even possible? Is it possible for a human to be full of the fullness of God? I don't know, but I sure want that. Anyone want your life to overflow with God, with his fullness, with his character, with his abilities, with his power, with his might, with his creativity? Man, I do. Okay, there's your goals. Oh, that Christ might dwell in us, that the fullness of God might overflow my cup. So I've said I'll give you practical stuff on all these. Prayer, I already gave it to you. Pray a Psalm. Pray Psalm 1. This week, just take Psalm 1. Start right there. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, who doesn't stand in the way of sinners, who doesn't sit with scoffers. And you just pray. God, am I tending towards things? Am I walking towards something right now that's ungodly, that's wicked? Have I made myself sit down with something that is scoffing at your name and your holiness? That's what you pray. You just go verse by verse by verse and see if it isn't brilliant, if it isn't family fellowship. That's what I found. Fasting. So here's how I fast. I'll eat a meal Sunday night. I'll skip breakfast and lunch, and then I'll eat a meal Monday night. So it's not a long time. It's 24 hours almost exactly. It's not like, oh, man, I'm starting to get the shakes or something like that. Real simple. And what I found is this. During those times, I just spend a little bit extra time praying or reading or thinking or something like that. And my mind, I don't know if it happens to you, when I fast, my mind's engaged better than any other time. Maybe it's the blood's not all in your gut trying to digest food or something. Something happens and it's amazing. I think really well. I don't do that every week. I do it whenever I feel like it. And it's Amazing when I eat that meal on Monday, how good it tastes, how good food is, and I'm just filled with gratitude for the goodness of God. And number three, give. Not when, or not if, I should say, when. When you give. Maybe God has put somebody on your heart, a neighbor, maybe a relative, friend. You know they're going through hardship right now. Be generous to them. Be generous. Figure out a way to give them that money like a secret Santa so there's no control of it. You don't try to kind of use it to manipulate them. You're saying, I'm giving this because God has led me to give to them. And watch how freeing and beautiful it is.